This is the Escape the Zoo Podcast. With your host, Daniel Clark. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Escape the Zoo Podcast, where we talk everything wildlife. Today's guest is Amy Vitali, a Nikon ambassador and National Geographic magazine photographer. In Style Magazine just named Amy one of 50 badass women who are changing the world. A list that also includes the likes of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Katie Couric, Cardi B, and Jane Goodall. So yes, it's a big, big deal. She is a founding member of Ripple Effect Images, an organization that uses storytelling to shed light on the hardships women in developing countries face and the programs that can help them. Amy recently published a best-selling book, Panda Love, on the secret lives of pandas. She lectures for the National Geographic Live series, and she's won a million different types of awards. We talk about a lot from her time with Sudan, the last male northern white rhino. You would definitely recognize her iconic photo from last year taken of Sudan moments before he passed. Uh, the incredible conservation efforts supporting panda bears in China and Reteti, a community-run elephant sanctuary in Kenya. I just wanted to mention two quick things before we get into this. One, Amy is currently running a fundraising campaign with Omaze at omaze.com slash rhinos. That's O-M-A-Z-E dot com slash rhinos. That supports a great cause. And for 10 bucks, you're entered to win a five-day trip to go with Amy and visit the last two northern white rhinos that will ever exist in this world. So it's really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And the second thing that I wanted to mention was that Amy travels all the time. So we've been going back and forth for probably about six months trying to find a date to record this. And when we finally found time to do so, we only had about 45 minutes where typically I schedule an hour and a half to two hours. So you'll see that I probably jump around topic to topic a little quicker than I normally would and don't dig quite as deep as I normally would. Um, so in case you were wondering why I was doing that, that's the reasoning. Irregardless, it's an awesome conversation and I really enjoyed it and I hope to do it again with Amy. So without further ado, here it is, my chat with the one and only Amy Vitali. Well, Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. This is several, several months in the making, so I'm very, very <laughs> excited. I know. It's actually the first time I'm terra firma in, um, gosh, like 11 months. So Damn. it's good to be back and good to talk to you. What is that like? So you're on the road like 300 plus days a year. Is it something like that? Yeah. I had 21 days at home last year and most of them, they were not, um, you know, I'd basically have sometimes just 12 hours to come home and repack for the next journey. And, um, and I'd be really excited if I had like three full days at home. Oh my goodness. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Do you, do you like it that way or does it get tiring? No, I feel like, I mean, I have this sense of urgency about life and I feel like I have this limited platform right now and I'm just on a wave and I'm riding the wave while I have it. 
and eventually the ocean is going to just pummel me and churn me up and then I'll find <laughs> another wave. <laughs> yeah, well, I was, I just watched, um, have you seen the documentary Jane about Jane Goodall? I sure have. Yeah. Yeah. It came out like last year, I think, but they were saying, I mean, she's got to be 75, 80 at this point in time and she's on the road. 350 something days a year. I actually think about her a lot because, you know, in those moments when it was just sheer exhaustion, waking up, not knowing really where you are. And I would think about her and not only that, like she is, she's a tough lady. She's Mm. like a whiskey drinking, like, oh really? she's a, she's my, um, of course, many of our role models. And I love that, you know, of course, having a woman role model is very important to half the population. Yeah. <laughs> so I, um, you know, I really, I definitely thought about her in those moments when I was questioning um, myself. Yes. I mean, she, she's basically said the same thing you did, which was, I feel like wildlife needs me and I have such an amazing platform to be able to tell it that spending any time at home is really hard to justify, which is really cool, but it's also a big burden to place on yourself. So Thank you from everybody on the other side for everything you're doing. (laughs) No, no need to, you know, we all do our parts, I guess, when we can. Speaking of women role models, I saw that InStyle ranked you as one of the 50 most badass women on the planet, which is pretty crazy because it's not like they were focusing strictly on photographers or really any specific genre like J.K. Rowling, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Cardi B, <laughs> and you were on there. What did that feel like? Well, I, I definitely don't feel like I deserve to be on there, um, but I'm grateful. And, um, and it's really not about me. I think it's really about the, I have this fantastic ability to shine a light on incredible people on the planet and, um, and a lot of women, I definitely look for women in these places that don't, you know, they're not on the covers of magazines and they're not, their stories aren't often being told. And I think maybe the reason I was, um, on that list is because it's more about the women that I shine a light on. And I think that's the reason for it. And so I get this incredible opportunity to find all these kind of hidden heroes out there and who are really making, you know, I feel like the power of one individual to make a change in this world is so real. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's kind of the people I look for. And so, yeah, that's, um, but that's, it was great. And to be able to, it then gave me this platform to shine a light on other, um, incredible women. Can you give an example of one of the most powerful stories that you feel you've been able to tell about an individual woman? And most of this is through ripple effect, right? So ripple effect is. No, no. Um, well, some of it, I mean, I, I love ripple effect and, and the mission of that organization. It's called ripple effect images and it's a group of, um, scientists, filmmakers, writers like Barbara Kingsolver, photographers, really we're just all storytellers. Mm -hmm. And we are telling the story of women um, who are being impacted by a changing climate, a changing environment, and shining a light on on those women that are out there making a difference and um, and kind of giving these stories that we create so that they can... um, 
use them for ad- advocacy. And um, but the but the back to the the um, you know I, I work with so many different organizations and places, mm-hmm. and Ripple is one of them. But I you know I'm happy to share. I think one of the stories that I was able to also share with that InStyle um, fifty badass women around the world, <laughs> um, and one of the women, and actually she was just. Um, representing all the women um, on this story that I've been working with um, in Kenya. I've been really engaged in Northern Kenya for almost a decade now. And I knew about this place. This It was the first indigenous-owned and run elephant sanctuary in all of Africa, meaning it's not like outsiders. It's the community saying, we want to protect what's left here. We want to protect our land and the wildlife that we live here with. And they were really um, seeing all the baby elephants when they would become orphaned, Mm -hmm. either through climate change, because sometimes they fall into wells, or in some cases, poaching. Um, These baby elephants were were never being able to come back to their own landscape because they were being sent to Southern Kenya and to to a sanctuary in Southern Kenya, which is also doing amazing work. But they wanted to have the elephants um, have a sanctuary in their own landscape so that one day those elephants could be sent back to the wild and reunited with their own herds. And so they did it against all odds. I mean, it's very political and nobody thought that it was possible. And I had been kind of following this story when it was just a dream, when everybody said, impossible, it will never happen. <laughs> and um, and then, you know, I kind of watched the whole story unfold over years um, in the making. Like really, it's been almost five years since the idea was just um, even more, actually, maybe six years ago, they thought about it. And then, um, and then the first elephant arrived um in September of 2016 and I was actually oh, wow. in Germany giving a talk and I got the call and I had none of my gear with me I was just kind of thinking I was making a quick trip to give a talk in Germany and it happened to be at um this big photography conference so I ran around the conference and I was like to the Manfrotto team can I borrow a tripod to Nikon can I borrow a couple cameras to like the sound people um, I so go. I basically like managed in like three hours to um get all of these companies to loan me some gear and then hopped on the first plane and got down there in time to start telling the story but this is a very long-winded answer all to say that the amazing the most amazing piece of the story I mean there's so many incredible parts of it but was that it's also the first elephant sanctuary in all of Africa maybe the world that is hiring indigenous women elephant keepers oh that's awesome and that was, you know, that blew everybody's mind because they just, you know, it's a very um, patriarchal society. Um, and and what's been so beautiful is to see after now almost three years of the sanctuary, the impact of that, what that actually means when you empower women to be doing the same role as men Um it changes the way people treat each other mm-hmm. and not just how they treat the wildlife that they coexist with, but how they see one another. And that's having really beautiful um, impacts. So yeah, I've, 
I've just loved finding these stories. And there's so many, you know, I think it's really important to talk about the challenges and sometimes the horrors of the world. Mm -hmm. But I think it's just as important to give a more balanced view of this world and what it really looks like. So yes, we talk about those things, but what are the solutions to this? Like, what do we do? And there are these, yeah. these stories that um, I think need to be told. And, and that's kind of what my mission is, is finding as cliche as it sounds hope on this planet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought so, the, that that's in Ratetti, right? Ratetti. Yeah. I, that's uh, the Ratetti elephant sanctuary. So yep. what I thought was interesting is when you're working with the indigenous, correct me and forgive me if I'm pronouncing this wrong, but Samburu uh, tribe over there. Yeah. How yeah. was that? Was that all right? That was pretty good, okay, cool. Daniel. <laughs> Thank you. I sound very sophisticated. Um, <laughs> when you're working Just down there, I know a lot of the times, uh, I believe in that indigenous tribe, that the relationship with the elephants can be tenuous over the history because whether it be crops or whether it be um, more domestic livestock, oftentimes the elephants are viewed as pests and kind of get in the way and there's a lot of human-animal conflict and in the yes. Western world where we are, we always focus on the poaching, which is obviously a huge problem, but equally as large of a problem is a lot of this human elephant conflict. So what I thought was really interesting is um, one, how that, have you seen that change the relationship with the indigenous tribe as a whole with the elephants? And also if it is a community run organization, um, what, how did they, just what was the genesis of this empathy towards the elephants when there had been this tenuous relationship? Yeah, those are really good questions. And I think that is so important to note because it's really easy for us kind of in, the, in our comfortable homes when we are not living with wildlife. Like, I don't think people really understand how terrifying it is when you're out there, you know, living in the elements and the fear of lions or elephants trampling you, like that is real. Yeah. And, um, and I think kind of having that empathy and understanding that people are not all evil on this planet. They are just trying to, you know, survive in the same way um, anybody else is. And, and so having that understanding is essential, but they, um, you know, of course they have, and, and, you know, it really, it's really interesting that human wildlife conflict will always exist. It just will. Mm -hmm. It's how you manage it. And so, you know, I noticed even, um, you know, when, when the droughts get longer and more severe, the conflict gets worse because people are getting pressed up together with the wildlife, um, you know, and what the, at these water sources. And, and that's when the conflict really erupts. So as we're seeing a changing uh, planet and changing climate, more extreme, we're going to see more of this. Mm -hmm. um, I think that this community in particular, they understood, they started to really see that they could benefit from wildlife through tourism, through, you know, tourism plays a big role there. And, you know, those tourism dollars make a difference. And I think as consumers, you know, people listening to this, like when you want to go on a safari to, to the, 
continent of Africa, really do your work, do your research and find out, is my money going back to the communities? Mm -hmm. Because that is important. You know, your choices impact these people and ultimately impact the wildlife. So when, when the money goes back to the communities, they understand that they can benefit. And that's what happened here. They started to understand that the short-term gains of, you know, perhaps poaching um, are not going to sustain them over time. That, um, you know, keeping the wildlife alive, protecting them, keeping the, that landscape and ecosystem healthy and intact is going to benefit themselves and their children and the next generations. So there's, you know, really these communities that are enlightened, they get it, and, um, and we can really help them. And even through the difficult times when there are droughts mm -hmm. and, and a changing landscape, giving them opportunities to make a living um, is really important. So they saw that, um, you know, that they could protect these elephants, but frankly, raising elephants, orphaned elephants is a lot more expensive than anybody realized. Oh, for sure. So... Um, it's, yeah, it's been a real learning curve for them. And, and I think, you know, um, people can go and visit, um, the lodges that are nearby and, um, and one thing which is very different than a lot of sanctuaries is there's very limited interaction with the elephants. Like the goal is to, um, make these elephants help them get back to the wild mm -hmm. eventually when they get big enough. So you have the opportunity to go and see the elephants, but it's not like this. It's not like a petting zoo. Yeah. <laughs> and I think people need to understand that, um, that that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, love is, um, you can love these creatures. And I think that's something people all over the planet need to understand is, um, loving wildlife means loving them from afar. You don't need to touch them. <laughs> yeah, no, hundred percent. And I think elephants yeah. in general, um, are such a unique species when it comes to, I mean, I've done some work with the David Sheldrick wildlife trust in the past, which I think is the, the one down South you were mentioning. And Correct. what's really interesting is that I guess a good example, Carl Safina was on the podcast uh, last week and oh, great. he wrote um, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. And one of the animals that he used as an example of how complex their emotional intelligence was, was the elephants because they live in these incredibly social environments. Everybody knows that an elephant has a, an incredible memory and they are incredibly capable of understanding emotion and, and intelligence. And when these orphaned animals go through these tragedy events, whether it be get stuck in a well and then their entire family ultimately has to depart them or they witness their mother or father being brutally murdered for their tusks, they go into deep, deep depressions. And at least at the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust, I mean, they sleep with a human every single night because their ability to get over these situations is really, really difficult. So to your point about it being more expensive than people really can imagine, although, although totally worthwhile. Um, it's because they're just such unique, beautiful animals that really comprehend in the same way that humans do. So I don't know. I, it's, they can it's, actually die of heartache. They can die of, um, of love, you know, yeah. of lack of love. And, um, you know, you just reminded me of this incredible story. So the keepers, I mean, they they are such incredibly sentient creatures, and one of the 
uh, women working with the elephants told me this story that I will never forget. She was working so hard and she had a, um, she had like a cut on her leg, which was getting septic. I'm not a doctor at all, but basically she could have died from this because she wasn't paying attention to it. And she was just so engaged with the elephants. And one of the elephants named Wargus, which she rescued, um, and had helped raise, um, you know, she was sitting there one day and Wargus goes over to the mud bath and takes mud and comes over and pats her leg. And then she's like, huh, that's really interesting. And then he goes back and he gets more mud. And elephants, the way they heal their wounds is by putting mud on them. And she just got very emotional. And she's like, you know, I had been taking care of this elephant you know, for a year and this elephant actually started taking care of me. And I mean, the, the relationship is so um, complex and beautiful and the stories, I mean, the stories of these keepers who really um, commit their whole lives to taking care of them. I mean, it will make you cry. It's so beautiful. I mean, that's a crazy story. (laughs) It is. That was probably a, a good, uh, indicator for her to start looking at it and <laughs> oh he saved her life he absolutely saved her life she said I, I wasn't paying attention to it and had he not come over and and kind of gently um tried to take care of her yeah. um, she would have ignored it more i yeah. love the stories too where you find out about these orphans who are reintroduced back into uh the, the wild, wild the wild and then they end up going out mating having their own children and then come back to the orphanage to show their keepers and their extended family essentially <gasps> the exactly. new babies That's, and it's like oh, yes like it's you, so you gotta see my new little I baby know. it's so cute i, love I it. actually witnessed that same thing with giraffe so there's a oh, really? wonderful man named lakup and i and he is the giraffe uh, whisperer and he's rescued all these giraffes and and it is so incredible because they've all gone back to the wild but they will come back uh. um, in the mornings to check in on Lakupani and then another incredible thing that I witnessed that um, I, w- I was so shocked because it didn't happen just once it happened twice when an, when a baby orphaned giraffe came into the sanctuary the the giraffe that had been orphans as well, but had gone back to the wild. I don't know how they knew that this baby just arrived, but they came, you know, from perhaps like, you know, 20 miles away and just showed up to greet that baby. And that happened twice. And then they would come every morning to check in and comfort that baby. So, you know, they say giraffe don't have, you know, I mean, we just know nothing about these animals. That's my, you know, that's my takeaway from all of this is that we are really ignorant. Yes. And, that, <laughs> and that's like to, to the megafauna. Like people don't even attribute that intelligence to like, even now talking, you're like a giraffe. I was like, really? I haven't heard anything about that. But I mean, yeah. you look at the behavior in interactions with birds and insects and even down <laughs> no, to like exactly. fungi. And you're like, what the hell is going on? Like, we don't understand any of this. I know. I. It's hilarious. I've gotten so... Um, sort of respectful that I have a hard time literally like even killing a mosquito now. I'm just like, I don't understand them. I mean, (laughs) the creepy, (laughs) the strangest one that I heard that I still blows my mind is Christina Mittermeier was telling me the story about, 
uh, there was a research boat that was always out and they were, for some reason, because they were out so much, these dolphins would always come and hang out by the research boat. And then one day they just weren't there and like weren't hanging out and everybody's like, where are the dolphins? I don't know what's going on, what's going on. And they go under the deck and a gentleman had died inside the deck and they think that there was some correlation to like the dolphins understood something about that energy going on and just i know this sounds foofy but like she was saying without hesitation every day these dolphins were there and the one time this freak thing happens they were just like nowhere to be found and wanted nothing to do with it so it's that's fascinating yeah Anyways, mm. <laughs> it's yeah. a weird world we live in. But back to the giraffes, they even just found out for years, people were always wondering, like, how do giraffes communicate with each other? And they would always see giraffes like stand up and kind of turn their heads and look around. And nobody really understood like what they were doing. And I guess just recently they published a paper that they make these like really intense, low pitched humming noises and mm-hmm. they like hum to each other across the plains. It's just mind blowing stuff. Oh, it is. I mean, it, it really is. And they also know where safety is. And I mean, I just came back from Niger where I was working on an incredible story there. They, a giraffe, this, there's this beautiful subspecies of giraffe called the West African giraffe. And they are almost white. They're, they're just magnificent, but they had been poached almost to extinction. So in Mali and Nigeria, and I mean, so many, all the surrounding countries, Benin, Burkina Faso, they'd been poached and they actually kind of came and gathered in Niger as this safe spot. And, um, and it's been this incredible story because there were Mm. only 49 of them left alive on the planet. And the government came and said to the people like, there's only 49 of these creatures and the communities have been protecting them. And so that now there's over 600 of them in Whoa. less than two decades, they've managed to, you know, so I feel like these are the stories I'm looking for because, you know, to remind us that, that we, we can against all odds, turn the ship around. And that, you know, I also think, um, you know, right now, getting engaged, understanding these stories really does matter. You know, yeah. we have the choice. And I think first, maybe it just starts with falling in love, you know, having <laughs> right. the courage to um, to fall in love and then get out there and use your voice because everybody's voice matters right now. I mean, frankly, there's just, there's not enough people engaged in, um, in the planet. Um, and that, you know, a friend of mine told me this and I, I love this. It's like the messenger matters just as much as the message. And it's important that every single one of us be that messenger because you're going to tell your friends a story and get them engaged. And they're going to listen to you much more than they would listen to me. And I just think all of us have to remember that. Yeah. It's like the, the total network effect of everything. I love that story Mm -hmm. or that's, that's saying. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Speaking of uh, positive conservation stories, I was researching, just prepping for this podcast about your work with the pandas in China. And it was my understanding that the, because obviously it's such an iconic creature, probably the most beautiful, like everybody loves a, a panda. They're the goofiest, funniest, cuddliest animals around. Um, 
I thought that they were struggling really hard to figure out how to do the captive breeding in China because they wanted, obviously, because it's so well associated with China, like China wants to make sure that they're existing and doing well in the wild. But I thought they were really struggling to have a successful captive breeding program. But through my research and reading your work, uh, it sounds like that might not necessarily be the case. What? Can- oh yeah, it's an incredible story. They actually cracked that code. Um, they struggled for almost two decades. They couldn't figure out how to, you know. So they had this idea, like, okay, you know, if we lose pandas in the wild, we need to have their magic number was three hundred. Three hundred to um, keep them alive with enough genetic diversity for the next century. Mm -hmm. That's what they wanted, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't figure out how to breed them until this incredible man, um, affectionately called Papa Panda, figured (laughs) out, his name is um, Zhang Hemin, and um, he figured out two really important things. Um, One was that the females only have 24 to 72 hours in a year to get pregnant. I mean, it's crazy and not not a big window. (laughs) And then, um, and so once they figured that out, and then the second piece was, you know, they were just putting any old male panda in front of the female panda. And it's like, oh my God, they need choice. Just like all of us, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they want to be wooed. And so, um, you know, they don't have the ability to swipe right or left and they they were like okay give her choice and and figure out this window when she's um able to get pregnant and they really cracked the code and now they um they've they've been able to breed them very successfully and actually in the beginning they were able to breed them but the pandas were still dying and then they had to figure out like why were the pandas dying and it turned out that um they realized that um, so, okay, 50% of the time, pandas give birth to twins. What? And so, yeah, and 50% of the time. And so in the wild, the panda, the wild panda would just let the weakest one die. She can only really care for one panda mm, at a time. That's dark. But obviously, um, in captivity, they're not going to let any panda die. Right. So they had this very elaborate swapping program where they would like – um, half the time the panda would be with the human nanny and half the time with its own mother so that it would have that ability to um, spend time with its own mother. And these human nannies and, are dressed like pandas, right? No, not oh, always. No. I'll get to that piece oh, of the okay. story. But um, so in this case, um, these pandas uh, are going to always be in captivity when they're, when they have that interaction with the nannies. But, um, but they were, they were still dying when they were with the human nannies. And they finally realized that when they're born, they're born like tiny, helpless, one nine hundredth the size of their mother. They, they look like a little um, rat, really. I mean, they have no fur. They have no... Like they, a naked they, mole they rat kind of thing. nothing like a panda, just a squiggle of a thing. And... Um, and so there, you know, there's just no hair on them, but they also don't have any muscles to even go to the bathroom. So they, the mother, the the panda mother was licking them all like for 24 hours straight. She cradles them and licks them. And, and they finally figured out this little piece that they needed to do that. 
So anyway, they figured that out and now they have this very successful breeding program. But the, um, but the panda costume is um, the best part of the story. And basically, very few pandas get chosen to go through. It turns out after one generation in captivity, pandas don't know how to survive in the wild. And so they want to send pandas back to the wild. It's not enough to just have them in captivity. They want to... Um, you know, keep the, the wild population um, alive and also um, give that genetic, um, you know, diversity back to the wild as well. Mm -hmm. So anyway, they're sending pandas back to the wild, but um, very few of them get to go through the panda training. And one of the main pieces is they should never feel comfortable around human beings. So anybody that interacts with them, whether it's um, the keepers or the scientist, or even me as the photographer, I had to dress up in this panda costume, which <laughs> they were like kind of creepy. You know, they were bank robber costumes. Yeah. <laughs> They're not even cute costumes, Yeah, but they were also scented with panda urine. Oh. And so we'd always um, have to, yeah, I know. I was like, oh, the lengths we go to, <laughs> to tell the stories. <laughs> But it wasn't that bad. I mean, they're vegetarian. Um, okay. So it wasn't horrible. Yeah. The smell wasn't that bad. So we'd have to dress up in these costumes to just even be around the bears. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that they cracked the code of uh, the mother would lick them and, and take care of them. But if she's only taking care of one, how did how are they actually doing? I'm assuming the human's not licking <laughs> the panda no they're patting their tummies so oh. i have all these photographs and a little film about it but they have to like pat them um Got and it. until they yeah i was like not. that would be a weird thing for a human nanny to come in and, <laughs> and <laughs> jump in at that part that. of the process <laughs> that would be pretty weird yeah <laughs> so so oh, now that they've hilarious. successfully cracked this code have they have they the reintroductions been successful and yeah, I mean, in the beginning, no. I mean, it's not easy to, as you know, any wild, any animal, captive animal being sent back to the wild is actually incredibly complicated. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, and so they did not have success in the beginning. And, you know, I, I think the last one that died was um, a male and it got attacked by all these other males. And so they realized like, okay, wait, we need to be sending females into the wild. And so since then they've actually, the um, pandas that have been sent back to the wild are doing really well. Okay. Um, but you know, it's a very slow process. And um, I think the biggest question, and they realize this is habitat, you know, habitat everywhere is the biggest thing. And so China is um, taking great efforts to create more forest coverage by, um, by um, reforesting areas and then um, creating um, corridors between existing habitat where pandas live mm -hmm. to try to, um, you know, expand their ranges and their ability to move. Um, but, cool. you know, it is kind of the story. It's this very unlikely story because, you know, we're so used to hearing the horror stories coming out of China, bad environmental stories, the poaching stories, no particular love for the wildlife. But, you know, I actually think that this is a story that is important to tell because I personally learned a lot from it. And I realized they did a lot of things, you know, they did a lot of things to first make a population 
that didn't have a particular love for wildlife, incredibly impoverished at the time. And how did they do it? How did they make these people fall in love with the, the panda bear? and enough to save it from extinction. And I think those lessons could be used in so many other places. And a lot of it was one about habitat, two about pride. Mm -hmm. How do you, you know, and I think that there's a lot there. There's a lot to think about. And, and what about creating, you know, pride in these communities when they are coexisting and, um, they should be, and they are sometimes proud of what they're doing, but kind of shining a light is important. Is there any part of you that this is the cynic in me coming out thinks that yeah. as much as that is like true and really nice, that there's also the side of it that the panda bear is China's like mascot for to the outside world. And there's a piece of it that the Chinese government would be like, we cannot lose pandas on our dime. So as much as like you want to think it's like an altruistic thing, I just struggled when you see like where all the money is, is spent in China. It's like such the, the leader in the illegal wildlife trade that unfortunately the one success story just happens to be the one that they probably stand to profit the most well, from. Here's the, here's the danger, that word they. Okay, who's they? And first of all, there's incredible, um, I, I get really upset when we define, I mean, uh, an entire nation with they, the That's Chinese. That's super fair. Yeah, for because, sure. Because, you know, frankly, there are people doing incredible things. And yes, the panda is an ambassador for um, for China in many different ways. But guess what? They're an ambassador for all the other species that are living in those forests with them. So when the, the panda bear benefits, a whole host of other species benefit. And then also, I have to say, there are incredible people in China, great conservationists, courageous people doing so much that they should be, they should be applauded for what they're doing. And we cannot, again, this idea of demonizing an entire nation, for me, like that's, I'm looking at how do we get to a place where we, we all are all coexisting? And I think that it's um, important, just as important to talk about the challenges and the, you know, the, the, the horrors that are happening as much as it is to talk about when things are working. You can't just do one or the other. 100%. And, and I, I do think that, um, you know, it's complicated and it's, and actually the Chinese government is doing a lot. They've, banned the tusk trade we have a lot farther to go with the rhino horn mm -hmm. and the tiger trade and so many other species but i think that um you know as a global audience showing the government that you know we appreciate what they've done For with sure. the panda and some of these other smaller species but kind of making it known making our voices known um when I, I think that I'm, I've never tried to gloss over the, you know, the real issues. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, I think that we tend to ignore the good things though. Yeah. And I, I think that's a media. really good point. And I mean, we were even talking before the podcast about how the collecting of people into mass groups and kind of using that to identify the entire cohort is not a very fair way to view things. And I agree with you entirely that uh, calling China they is not the right uh, approach to be doing that. I'm, 
and was never my intention in that question. Oh, but, sure. I'm, um, but I hear it a lot. I mean, yeah. just, I think it's very, people will tend to attack it. And, um, and them. I, I also think there is a lot of truth to the fact that when the, the Chinese, if, if we can talk about it collectively too, when they do see that there is positive reinforcements to the success of the panda thing, that they might see that that's really something that's created a lot of goodwill amongst the general population and would want to do that. And kind of finding an excuse to still be rude about something that's pretty awesome is not a great thing. And I was actually talking to, um, he actually lives by you, Jed Weingarten. I don't know if you know him, but he runs Wild Wonders of China, uh, highlighting a lot of Chinese wildlife species, does a lot of work in the Tibetan Plateau. And he was saying, in contrast to here in America, where we've kind of brought back a lot of our protected areas, uh, China altruistically has really set apart a lot of national park reserves, whatever you want to call them, areas, oh, the, yeah. like huge yeah. expanses of land strictly for altruistic wildlife and like natural reserve purposes in, in ways that we're not doing at all here. So I think the difficulty is you get into this strict thing where you're like, okay, like clearly the illegal wildlife trade in the ivory trade, rhino horn is is centralized in Asia, particularly within China. But at the same time, you look at pandas, you look at the the great expanses Listen, of land they're putting yeah. aside, and that's great, you know? So here, it's really complicated. And I just want to kind of um, wrap up and say a couple of things mm -hmm. that like, one, the Chinese are actually studying our national park system and creating this incredible um, park system. And, and, and frankly, when you look at our alternative energies, they are actually doing so much more than the United States is currently. Frankly, Trump um, reversed the ban on um, the elephant, um, on the tusk trade. You know, he opened it up so that we can um, bring tusks in yeah, from a couple awful. of countries in Africa. You yeah. know, when I look at art politically, so what I, I want to just distinguish between the politics and the governments and the people. Yes. And I think it's really important to do that because if you look at and you write things down on paper, frankly, China's doing a lot more and people hate to hear this, but like, I just encourage, we don't hear it in our news. We don't hear the stories of what's actually happening. And that is the reality. Our country has a long way to go and we have a lot of work to do. And I just say, let's focus on what we can do, what you can do in your own backyard. And instead of demonizing people, let's all understand that, you know, um, we have to, we have to find solutions. Um, I'm really all about, um, you know, not glazing over. I mean, I think that the, the real problem is, yes, there is this whole illegal trade going on and it, it may not be a lot of people, but they're doing a ton of damage. And, and how do we get to a better place? And I think that, you know, my whole feeling is, um, I think that I do a lot more good by giving people hope to get out of bed and realize that there's a lot of good on this planet and yeah. we need to support those communities. And I think that we have to treat other human beings with empathy because there is room enough for all of us, but only, only if we hear, truly hear what one another are saying. And yes, the challenges are formidable, but there is no better time in human history to have greater awareness and opportunity for transformation. And people are smart. You know, we, we can get to a better place, but it's going to take a lot of work and understanding. And, 
you know, I think it's important to talk about this because it's so easy to just get on the internet and think you understand Mm -hmm. a story and you don't, it's complicated. Um, And I think that we have the ability right now, you know, to wake up and decide what path you want to be on. It's um, either we're going to be on the path of like the greatest human tragedy or we can become the model for the future. Yeah. And and to that point, too, I totally agree in the sense that it has to start with empathy in the sense that if I see someone who doesn't have the same agree morality, political views as me, typically I I genuinely believe everybody's a product of the environment in which they were raised and the culture in which they were raised and whether that's right or wrong, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Like that's why I hate so much is the the discourse that goes on in our country now is nobody's willing to get to the table and just sit and talk and figure it out. And I think a great example for the not using the collective they and looking at the Chinese as individuals as well is, I mean, look at shark fin soup. Shark fin soup was something that culturally, that's just like what they did. I mean, it's an awful practice. I think it's personally barbaric and it's a terrible thing, but it was just part of culture. And you can understand like, oh yeah, my friends drink shark fin soup. I don't know anything about what shark fin soup is doing to the environment. I'll just drink it too and or eat it too. And then Yao Ming does that special with Wild Aid. He explains that there is a big environmental uh, issue with doing that, tries to get it into the culture and it drops off 80% almost overnight. And I mean, right. that that's just something where that's education, that's uh, taking empathy and informing people and then people can make the right decisions for themselves and just kind of being like, oh yeah, that part of the world doesn't care about wildlife is a really ignorant statement to make, I think. Yeah, I mean, I guess my whole takeaway from everything is just, I encourage everybody to focus on what you can do as one individual and you'll be surprised how much one person can do. And I think that, you know, I I also had um, the heartbreaking um, privilege of covering um, the end of the northern white rhinos as a species. You know, yeah. I've been covering this story for 10 years now and um, and they called me and told me to hurry over because Sudan was about to pass away and it was just it was such a you know, it, it really woke me up again and I just feel like let everybody be woken up because on this planet we've got 7 billion people and unless we start seeing ourselves as part of the landscape and is our fate linked to the fate of um, the natural world, um, I think losing one part of nature is going to impact all of us. And realizing that and realizing that planet Earth, you know, it's not, it's, you know, I think we somehow have become so disconnected from it all. And, And instead of pointing fingers and saying how terrible and cynical, like, look, you can do a lot in the choices you make on a day-to-day basis, every single one of us. And and just um, getting engaged matters. Um, and that's, I guess that's all I want to say really and and inspire people with my own work. And, you know, let's not let all these creatures eclipse into a myth. Um, let's um, see a, a different future. Talking about Sudan, as somebody who did spend 10 years in that story and understands it much more than most people who really found out when he unfortunately passed away, which is a super sad tragedy, having such an intimate understanding of that story, what's the biggest takeaway that might not be present other than, oh yeah, it sucks that we lost an, an extinct animal? Is there something 
something you feel that the general population doesn't understand about that story that's really powerful um, or just like being so close to it if there's a different understanding of the story, if that makes sense? No, I, th- I think that, um, you know, it's kind of what I just said is that I think it's kind of this understanding that it's not just this ancient species that survived for millions of years and couldn't survive mankind. Oh, how sad. No, it's actually like our future depends on all of these creatures and losing these keystone species and frankly, witnessing extinction happening every day on our watch should make everybody really, really sad because guess what? One day it's going to, it's actually watching the end of humanity too. And until you realize how intricately linked we all are, that it's impacting all of us and our own health, that it's going to impact your children, that we are condemning the next generations to eternal poverty, like waking up and real, that's what saddens me the most is that our children and grandchildren won't be able to see and benefit from the variety of life we have today. That we're really, you know, what do we do? It's like, we need to wake up right now and and feel connected and not to be cynical like that doesn't cynicism doesn't work you know i want everybody to understand and that's why i find these beautiful stories like the story of riteti where mm-hmm. these people a community with no power no money no you know not much against all odds they had nothing it was a small group of individuals who changed the destiny of their future and if they can do it why can't you? Yeah, I think that's very powerful and very true. I'll be honest with you. I'm struggling just because there's so many more things I want to pick apart there, but I know you have to have to go. And so we'll have to, uh, we'll have to do this well, another part time. Two. <laughs> I would love to reconnect. Yes, yeah. But if you don't mind, I end every podcast with some quick rapid fire questions. Uh Oh, favorite wildlife documentary and favorite wildlife book. Oh, I mean, how can you not love David Attenborough, anything um, by him? And I would say the same thing. I I love his books, but I can't pick just one. I'm so sorry that that's just impossible. (laughs) My girlfriend does the same thing. She's always like, what's your favorite food? I'll be like, that's like saying, pick your favorite child. Sorry. I I revoked my answer on that. (laughs) All right. David Attenborough it is. (laughs) No, no, I won't even say I love him. There's so many people I love, but um yeah. Uh, if yeah. you could single out this, you might give me the same answer on this, but I'm going to ask anyways. If you could single out one special moment where you're sitting there, you're able to be out in the field, be really present in the moment and just look back and be like, I can't believe I get to do the work that I do for a living. Is there one moment that really sticks out? Yeah, you know, I'm going to give one moment and it is sort of witnessing the end of um, the Northern White Rhino and following that story along. It's been so poignant and I want to actually give a shout out because I'm doing a fundraiser right now and one lucky winner is going to be able to bring a guest with them and I'm going to give them a private workshop to in at Old Pejeta Wildlife Conservancy in Northern Kenya, where they're going to get to meet the last two female Northern White Rhinos and go on a safari with me and really 
look at these issues up close, meet the people who are protecting the wildlife and understand what it all means. So I have this campaign going for another until like March 23rd or something, and it's called omaze.com backslash rhinos. And I only say this because all the money is going to go back into those communities. Oh, I love and that. you can just um, donate $10 and you get a ticket and chance to win this trip. That's a trip of a lifetime. And for everybody listening, as always, links in the show notes for all of this information. So definitely check that out and give $10. That's That sounds amazing. I need to do yeah. that too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next five years, what are the big stories you're focusing on? Is there uh, a certain North Star that you really want to set forth uh, telling a certain story? Yeah. I mean, I kind of, I end up spending years and years in the same places to try to watch as things unfold and, and look at the challenges and successes. So I will probably be continuing some of the same work I'm doing now. I'm also working, um, my next projects are working with artists because um, I want to engage new audiences in different ways and um, and create people, create opportunities for people that are, have never been in you know, the traditional, um, like they haven't had the opportunity to engage with the wildlife around them. So I'm, I've got a few projects that I can talk about at a later date with yeah, you, yeah. but, um, but yeah, just, and I'm doing a big story on giraffes for National Geographic right now, looking at their situation. They're, um, silently going extinct as well, trying to find hopeful stories within that. And, um, yeah, a number, and then the elephant sanctuary will continue to follow over time, but, um, so many, many things. <laughs> awesome. And my last question, I promise if you could put a billboard on the side of a major highway that disseminates one message in 10 words or less, what would you choose to put on that billboard? Don't sit this one out, get engaged right now because planet earth is the only home we have. And yes, okay, this is way more than 10 words, <laughs> <laughs> but um, our fate is linked to the fate of the natural world. Get involved right now. Like, I don't know. I'd have to work on the, the pitch for you, but no, that I, general message. I like, don't sit this one out. Use your voice. Yeah. Don't sit this one out. Use your voice. Get engaged because even in your own backyard, you'd be surprised how much there is everywhere. But Amy, I'm a huge fan, absolute super fan. I'm really happy we were able to do this and very thankful of you taking the time, but more thankful for all the work that you do. So um, from me and everybody else, thank you so much for everything. And uh, I really look forward to connecting no. again. I would just say thank you. Thank you, honestly, for giving me the opportunity and thanks for everything you're doing. So charge on, my friend. Really nice to be here. Yes, and nice meeting you finally, Amy. And to everybody else listening, thank you as well. Until next time, stay wild. Thank you so much for listening. I honestly cannot express how much I appreciate you taking the time for all information regarding this episode's guest, social channels, books, how you can support, etc., please check out our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast. We are everywhere that you can find podcasts. Subscribe to Escape the Zoo on YouTube, follow Escape the Zoo on Instagram, like Escape the Zoo on Facebook, and please share with your friends. It honestly goes so far and means so much to me. And lastly, if you'd like to be emailed with each new podcast and any other major Escape the Zoo updates, 
visit escapethezoo.tv and sign up for our email list. Thank you.